Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> this is your church home and your church family. Welcome to you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome to you as well in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know who I am, my name's Chad. My title here is Pastor in Training. And it's a joy to be bringing the word to you all again two weeks in a row. That's kind of the rhythm we're doing this year. And uh, I'm excited to, to worship our way through the preaching and the receiving of God's word together. Uh, join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we have said three times this morning, it's a day that you've made. Help us rejoice and be glad in it. We love you, Lord, and we are thankful for this opportunity to gather again with your people and sing your praises and fellowship and encourage one another and I just look to you, and um, Lord, I am thankful for the reminder this week and even now of our weakness and my own weakness, and uh, I acknowledge, Lord, that I don't come with words of eloquence or wisdom from man, from myself, but I have determined to know Christ and Him crucified, and so have your people, and And so I pray, Lord, that you would use me to speak your word this morning and that people would see that the power is not in me or in the wisdom of man, but in you, in your spirit and your word. Thank you for your word and and the, the view we get of Jesus this morning and for the gospel of Luke. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know bits and pieces or all of my story. I'm going to share a little bit this morning. Um, I am the, I was the pastor in training when I first, or the pastoral intern when I first got hired here, but this isn't my first ministry experience. Some of you know that I was the pastoral intern at our sister church in Fort Collins called The Crossing. And actually before that, I was on staff at another church in Fort Collins for four years from 2014 to 2018. When I got that job in 2014, I was a baby Christian. I didn't, I didn't have any theological convictions or ministry philosophy convictions. I had just been radically saved, like any Christian. All of our salvation was radical, whether we know it or not. But uh, mine was the, the story of the younger prodigal son and, and the Lord drawing me back to himself. And so I got offered this job in Fort Collins and took it and... It was great, and I'm thankful for it, but in four years, I grew a lot. I, I, I was, I'm a voracious reader. I read the Bible multiple times. I read many books, and the um, sad part of the story is that I, I grew apart from the pastor theologically, significantly, and, and our theology informs our ministry philosophy, and so I knew I needed to step down, and so I stepped down from that church in December of 2018, but before I stepped down... Uh, I still felt this deep calling and passion and aspiration for vocational pastoral ministry. So I applied for, I think, about 20 jobs in ministry. 
and a few of them all over the world. I applied for one in Australia. I think I applied for one in China. Maybe not the wisest decision, but I'm just shotgunning my resume literally into the world saying, Lord, I, I know you've called me to vocational pastoral ministry, so I know you're going to provide something. But the truth is he, he didn't open any of those doors. I didn't even, I, I think I maybe got one email back saying no thanks. The rest, I got ghosted. If you older folks don't know what it means to get ghosted, it's just when someone doesn't get back to you like they're a ghost. And um, it was really, it was a really hard season because I, I had this deep fire in my heart to, to do this for a living. And God wasn't meeting my expectations of what I thought he should be doing. It was a really, really tough season and, and tough circumstance. And I stepped down in December of 2018, not having a job lined up. They gave me uh, some money to help us out, but that was running out. And so I just had to get a job. And I was rubbing shoulders with a guy I was playing hockey with. And he said, well, you can come uh, install solar panels. I work at a, a solar panel installation company. And at that point, I said, I just need to get a job. I need to provide for my family. So I, I was on roofs for two months. And for a guy who really doesn't like heights <laughs> and who's had knee surgery, standing on roofs all day was miserable. So then another friend uh, helped me get a job framing houses with he and his dad and his uncle. And so for the next year, I, I banged nails and built houses. And I wouldn't change that season. God did a lot in my heart. But that tough season and that tough circumstance caused me to, to doubt God, to question his character. And, and it, it showed me some wrong expectations of what God should be doing with my life. Because remember, it's, it's my life. Like, you're in control as long as you're doing what I want you to do with my life. You know? The problem with the living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar, people say. I wonder how many of you have had a similar experience, though. Tough circumstances that have caused you to doubt God's character and potentially exposed your wrong expectations of what he should be doing in your life or for your life. Marriage is tough. That wasn't your expectation. Your job is tough. Your kids are wayward. You're struggling with chronic pain, and it's made you doubt God. And it's exposed your expectations of what you think he should be doing. That's what we're going to see in the text this morning. John the Baptist is in prison, and he's struggling with doubt about Jesus because he had some wrong expectations. But Jesus gives him grace, and John receives assurance but then we also see others in this scene, Pharisees and lawyers who aren't struggling with doubt. They don't bring their doubt to Jesus, but they are hardened in their unbelief. And Jesus gives encouragement to John and those who have the same struggle as him, all of us at some point, and a rebuke for those who think God should play by their rules. So last week, we read the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant, if you remember, and raising the woman's son from the dead. We saw that Jesus' authority is clothed in his compassion, and that because he is a compassionate God, he exercises authority over sickness and death. And we, like the centurion and the widow, can rest in his authority 
and revel in his compassion. After Jesus raised the man from the dead, the crowd said, a great prophet has arisen among us. But as we will see this morning, Jesus is more than a prophet. And his cousin John is about to be reminded of that. We will see John's circumstance and expectations of what the Messiah would do had caused him to doubt who Jesus really is. But as I said, Jesus responds graciously. And what's amazing, he even commends John to the crowds. And then he tells a short parable about the hard-heartedness of that generation many of whom had completely rejected him, especially the religious leaders. So I've structured the sermon around three questions this morning. The first is, who is Jesus? The second is, who is John? And the third is, who is writing the song? That third point sounds confusing. I I hope and pray it'll make sense once we get there. And you can see the verse numbers next to those points. What I believe the text will show us this morning what I hope you would walk away with is this, that Jesus' works and words and John the Baptist's ministry prove that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore the songwriter in the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. Jesus' works and words and John the Baptist's ministry prove that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore the songwriter in the kingdom of God. So first, let's look at this question, who is Jesus, verses 18 through 23. This question ultimately comes from John the Baptist. John hasn't been on the scene since Luke chapter 3, and we read in Luke 3, verse 20, that Herod has thrown John in prison. So after Jesus does his miracles in verses 1 through 17 that we read last week, in verse 18, John's disciples report to him what Jesus has done. And verse 19 says, Calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, why would John say this? Didn't we read in chapter 3 that John was confident that Jesus was the Messiah? He was confident. But like many in Israel, he did not understand the way and the number of times that the Messiah would come, namely twice. So let's look back at a few of the things that John said to show this misunderstanding. John says in Luke 3, verses 7 through 9, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now listen to verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He goes on in verses 16 and 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So obviously with words like wrath to come 
The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Jesus baptizing people with fire and finally Jesus clearing his threshing floor and gathering the wheat and burning the chaff. John thought Jesus was bringing the judgment of God the first time he came. And this was the belief of many Israelites during this time. They thought if Messiah came, he would overthrow Rome, set up God's kingdom on earth as a conquering king. So John is in need of some reassurance. He's struggling with doubt because Jesus' actions aren't lining up with his expectations, especially that whole proclaiming liberty to the captives as he's rotting in prison. So John, having faithful disciples, sends them to Jesus, and they ask verbatim what John told them to ask. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In verses 21 through 23 say this, In that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In that hour, the first three words in verse 21, is probably a reference to what we read last week, at least, verses 1 through 17, the healing of the centurion servant, the raising of the widow's son. But maybe Jesus had done more. Remember at the end of John's gospel, he has that funny line, John 21, 25, Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We know Jesus did many miracles. And John reminds us in his gospel that not everything Jesus did was written down. But Jesus, in order to answer John's question, points to scripture, specifically the book of Isaiah. Throughout Isaiah, there are prophecies of the Messiah, known in Isaiah as the suffering servant. And in these passages, the Messiah is described, and so are his actions. And Jesus' words come from various places in Isaiah, Isaiah 29 and 35 and chapter 8. In Isaiah, the Messiah is described as giving sight to the blind, allowing the lame to walk, cleansing lepers, giving hearing to the deaf, raising the dead, and preaching good news to the poor, and being a blessing to those that aren't offended by him. All these things Jesus has been doing. Therefore, he's reassuring John that he is the Messiah. He's saying, John, don't let your circumstance cause you to doubt. I am fulfilling the actions that Isaiah prophesied I would do, that the Messiah would do. We learn from John to bring our doubts to Jesus and to seek answers in his word. So after reading last week's passage, the people declared Jesus a prophet, but here we see he isn't just a prophet. He is the promised Messiah. He has fulfilled scripture. And and he ends by saying, and blessed are you if you aren't offended by him. The life of And death of Jesus is the centerpiece of redemptive history. It all comes down to him, what we do with him. 
if we don't stumble over him, reject him, but embrace him, or as John says in his gospel, believe and receive him, we receive salvation. We receive the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God. And, and joy here and now and in heaven, joy, full joy and forever joy someday with him. Church family, since, since we have bowed to Jesus as Messiah, we are blessed, aren't we? No matter our circumstance, because we can say, my king saved me. Ultimately, no matter what's happening here, my king saved me. And he saved us. One song says it like this, because the gospel is true, there's always reason to rejoice. And I don't mean that my sorrow is inconspicuous, but when I grieve, I have a greater joy in the midst of it. The joy of knowing I will see you face to face, and it's all to the praise of your glorious grace. Remember who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's your Messiah. If your circumstances caused you to doubt Jesus, doubt your doubt. Remember what he did when, when he walked the earth. He fulfilled prophecy from hundreds of years before he walked the earth. Remember what he's done for you and for his people. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And his way was prepared by John the Baptist. That's our second point. Who is John the Baptist? Verses 24 through 30. After John's disciples leave, Jesus turns to the crowd and speaks to them concerning John. 24 through 26 say this, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus asks the crowd what they went to see when they went to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. First, he says, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? There's debate about what Jesus means here. Is he using that as a metaphor for John? Like saying, did you go out to see a weak man tossed to and fro by the wind, a man with no backbone, a man with no conviction? John was not a weak man. He was in prison because he was saying to King Herod, you may not have your brother's wife. You are in an adulterous marriage. That takes backbone. That takes conviction. Or is, is, is Jesus, when he says a reed shaken by the wind, is he speaking literally? Is he saying to the crowd, when you went out into the wilderness, did you go to see the vegetation? Either way, he's making the point. They did not go out either to see a weak man or some reeds. So it doesn't really matter what he meant there. I mean, it does, but he's making a rhetorical point. He goes on to ask them, did they go out to see a well-dressed man Wearing soft clothing? No. He was wearing camel's hair. We all remember that. My six-year-old son all the time says, John the Baptist, he was wearing camel's hair, and he ate grasshoppers. And I said, I didn't know. He was kind of a weird guy. 
Those who dress like that live in luxury and are in king's courts. So finally, Jesus stops asking rhetorical questions and gives a direct answer. When the people went out to see John the Baptist, they went out to see a prophet, but more than a prophet, Jesus says. And then he appeals to scripture again. He says John is the one prophesied of in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John is more than a prophet. He is the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. Even though we're reading this in the New Testament, John was still under the Old Covenant. So theologians rightly call him the last Old Testament prophet which makes him unique among the prophets. He was the transition figure between the old and new covenants. He was the bridge figure from one era to another, which is why Jesus says in verse 28, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. John was the prophesied prophet whose ministry was to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah, which he did and which Jesus appeals to. And yet, Jesus says right, right there, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. A bridge is good, but it's never a final destination, right? The bridge is meant to, to get you somewhere. And that's what John's ministry was meant to do. As great as John was, he was still just a prophet, preparing people for the time of fulfillment in the Messiah. John would be beheaded before Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit. So he wouldn't get to experience the new covenant benefits in the here and now. That's not to say he won't be in the kingdom. We'll get to meet John the Baptist someday. But he just didn't get to experience the new covenant the way we do and those after Jesus' ascension have. Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2. So one commentator says, it is more significant to be the least member in the era of fulfillment than to have been the greatest prophet. That's pretty amazing if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, we think so highly of John the Baptist and King David. But think about the privilege that we have in, in living in this time that we are in, the time of fulfillment that we would be considered greater than John the Baptist because we have a greater experience and more revelation about the kingdom than John had. That we live in the time of, of the completed canon of Scripture, that we understand that there would be two comings of the Messiah. We don't understand the second one perfectly. There's debate about what the second coming is going to be like, but we know he's coming, you know? In the debate on the millennium, in the end time, some people say, I'm a pan-millennial. Everything's going to pan out in the end. <laughs> but just the privilege of living in this time of fulfillment, the time of the church, and this time of God's mercy, as he uses us, not just me and Dan and Stephen and Jake and John, us, the church, to preach the gospel and to save his people, is really something to be thankful for and humbled by. 
after this, Jesus says, no, after Jesus says, the one, this one is, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John, Luke says this in 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The point here is that some people, some of whom were tax collectors, received John's call to be baptized. And some, like the Pharisees and lawyers, rejected John, and therefore they rejected God. But it's weird language to us, isn't it, that they declared God just? Isn't that what God does for us? Isn't that a theological word we say God declares us just and righteous when we put our faith in Jesus Christ? So what does that mean? This isn't the people placing themselves above God. It's them agreeing with him and his message through John the Baptist. One commentator explaining the meaning of the Greek says that where they declare God just, it speaks of the people responding favorably to God's overture of forgiveness because they recognize that God's call for repentance was correct. They're agreeing with God. You're right, God. You're the songwriter in the kingdom, and we're going to dance to your tune. And if your messenger is saying, repent and be baptized, then that's what we're going to do. For those who received John's message of repentance and baptism, they embraced God and his purpose for their lives. And for those who didn't, they rejected God's purpose for their lives. Which brings us to the third point. Who is writing the song? This is verses 31 through 35. This is a unique way to title the point, but I, like I said, I hope it makes sense by the end. We know that many in Jesus' time rejected him, especially the religious elite, so he tells this parable about them, a parable referred to by scholars and commentators as the parable of the complaining children or even the parable of the brats. He says that those who have rejected him are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played for the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners." So these children in the marketplace are upset that the other kids that they are playing for aren't responding in the way that they desire to their songs. They're saying, we're in charge and we're playing these songs and you're not responding the right way. And here's the point. The Pharisees and the lawyers wrongly thought that they were in charge of the kingdom of God. They thought they were the songwriters in the kingdom, and that people should dance to their tune whatever they played. And yet Jesus tells them, it doesn't matter what tune John danced to or what tune I danced to. It was never going to be correct according to you. You would always tell us we're doing it wrong. John came as an ascetic, and they accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus came as an apparent hedonist, and they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And the truth was, it wouldn't have mattered how John or Jesus acted. The religious leaders would have found a way to reject them. 
They weren't going to enter the game unless it was played by their rules. And that's Jesus' point. These leaders wrongly thought that they were in charge, that they were the songwriters in God's kingdom. They were not. And they couldn't stand listening to God's messengers. They couldn't stand that Jesus had come on the scene and had the audacity to remind them that he and God the Father were the composer and songwriter in this kingdom. Yet, Jesus says in verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. That means that Jesus and John's lives and actions are proved right and righteous by their deeds. And the same is true for those of us who follow Jesus. Those who received John and Jesus are, are proven to be right and on the side of God. And those who rejected God's messengers will be proven wrong. So I ask you, have you acknowledged that God is the songwriter especially if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, that God is in control, that it's his world and it's his rules. But even for those of us who are Christians here, sometimes we have to remember we have a little bit of Pharisee in these sinful hearts of ours. and Sometimes we can think that God needs to play by our rules and by the Holy Spirit. We, we will repent of that and say, not my will, not my life, but your will, because my life is yours. Be done. So where do you stand? Who do you say Jesus is? Will you side with wisdom? Or will you be like the complaining children wanting God to play by your rules? Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world. It's go I promise and you know this, and many of you are older than me, and you know it better than me, it's going to be full of pain and trials and hardship and disheartening circumstances. Like John, we may struggle with doubt because of those circumstances and our expectations of what Jesus should do. You may have began your marriage with the intent of glorifying the Lord and selflessly loving and serving your spouse and expecting the same thing in return, expecting, expecting the Lord to bless your marriage, and yet you are in the midst of deep marital struggle. You may have accepted a career that you believe God had called you to, expecting to enjoy every moment, only to be questioning that calling. You may eat really healthy. You may exercise often, expecting great health, only to learn of major health issues. Within your circumstance is your Messiah. And as we saw the portrait of him last week, he has all authority and compassion. And he is writing your story for God's glory. As I've read the Bible many times, I'm sure many of you have, it's, doesn't it seem that one of the goals of the Christian life is to have an uncircumstantial joy and faith? Doesn't it seem like if, if we could zoom out enough, like one of Paul, the Apostle Paul's main points is 
to live as Christ, to die as gain. I have learned to be content in everything, whether I'm high or low, because I belong to Christ and Christ belongs to me. And my circumstances don't make me question his character or his goodness. And my only expectation of him is that he's gonna keep me to the end because he promises that in his word and many other promises that we can expect if they're rooted in his word. We can learn to be content and joyful no matter what's going on around us because we know who God is. We know who his son is. We do well to question our expectations of what God should be doing for us if they aren't informed by God's word. Which leads to another application. Notice how in the first two points, Jesus explicitly points to scripture to make his arguments. Not that he had to do that. Jesus is God, so there are times where he comes on the scene and just says, truly, truly, I say to you. And we should take it as the word of God. But other times in his ministry, he points to God's word, the Bible. He argues the validity of his Messiahship and John's office of prophet from the scriptures. And I would argue even in that third point, Jesus' point is the religious leaders aren't submitting to God's authority or his to make the rules or to compose the songs in the kingdom. That's why, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are our ultimate authority in this church and in the Protestant church. This is our authority. These are God's words to us and for us, inerrant, infallible, and rightly to be submitted to. If you're visiting with us this morning and you are a Christian, I don't address you very much, but you don't call this your church home, maybe your church shopping, you should know this about us. We believe this is God's word. It's inerrant and it's infallible. And the main thing we're gonna do here every Sunday morning is preach through this book. We call it consecutive expository preaching. Consecutive meaning chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through a book. Expository just means we're trying to show you what's in the text. Preaching's really hard and it's really easy. All I'm trying to do is say, look what's here. And if you see it, you should obey it. If you're a Christian, you should submit to its authority because it is God's word to me and to you. I don't believe it's ever gonna happen, but if we ever stopped preaching from this book, leave, run out of here. There's a horror story of a church actually in the town I grew up in where they started preaching through another book and the church crumbled, everyone left and God bless them, they should have. And you should too, if we ever see we move on from the authority of the scriptures. And these scriptures, brothers and sisters, what we saw just here, just now, is that Jesus is the Messiah. His works and his words testified that he is the promised one. And John the Baptist's ministry affirmed that as well, and therefore he is the songwriter in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we submit to your authority this morning, your lordship. Jesus Christ, you are the head of this church. You are our master and we are your slaves. And we praise you that you are also our Messiah and our Savior and that you went to the cross 
and you died in our place after living a perfect life, a sinless life. And Lord, we know that death couldn't hold you, that you rose again three days later, you ascended to the Father, and you've sent the Holy Spirit to grant us faith. We acknowledge that were it not for your grace, all of us would be like the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejecting you and thinking that you need to play by our rules. But Lord, because of your grace, you've opened our eyes to see that you are God and we're not. We're the sheep of your pasture and you're in control. And we praise you for that, Lord. And I pray that you would um, use this view of your son Jesus to strengthen the faith of your children and to draw your wayward children, your lost sheep, back to yourself. We love you and praise you and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.